listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. You're going to have to forgive me, but I just came back from uh, feeding my baby daughter. And there's this amazing uh, divinity to staring at your child or somebody else's child, a very, very young child, and looking in their eyes and they hold your gaze, absolutely hold your gaze, and then vomit all over you. (laughs) Nirvana. Absolutely remarkable. And then as kind of a, a cap to that whole thing, as you're changing her diaper, she projectile poops all <laughs> over and then pees. So every excretion is flying at me. Nirvana. I kept thinking to myself uh, of the quote that Lao Tzu says, when your cup is full, stop pouring. When our cups are full, stop pouring. Now for her, the cup is not full at all. She's constantly going. But there's something about that um, new being that you can see kind of forming and opening to the world, welcoming herself to the world, that reminds each of us of what's really important and what's not important. Last week we talked about nonsense. What's the nonsense that we have in our lives that we really don't need, but we keep hanging on to? We just keep hanging on to it. I don't think we need a child in our lives to see this. It's helpful, but so is any teacher, be it a child, a spouse, uh, a marvelous relationship that's really enriching, or a challenging relationship that you might have. All those equally offer the light of spirit as a guide into God's house. We are so accustomed and conditioned to wanting more or denying ourselves, instead of finding a balance between gain and loss where there is no gain and no loss we're usually tilting in one direction or another but it is absolutely possible absolutely possible for us to engage in a practice that shows us that path, shows us that red carpet. I refer to it sometimes as the red carpet. And it's so simple. It's one word. It's stillness. Can we uncover stillness? Can you uncover stillness when you're in the midst of something that's very busy?
Can you observe your life instead of being caught by it? In that observation, we simultaneously nourish stillness and allow for stillness to nourish what is true in us. When I say true, I mean the stuff that is not nonsense. I know that's a double negative, but I'm sure you can work through that. The stuff that really matters. It nourishes the stuff that really matters. And the nonsense gets seen for what it is. Those stories we may have, those dramas that the ego loves to play with, especially the ones that say, I'm too much, and the ones that say, I'm not enough. Anytime you feel that, I'm not enough, my cup isn't full enough, that's ego creating a story to keep you from recognizing what's already and always true about you, that you're complete. You're perfect just the way you are. I love that line that Fred Rogers always used to say. I mean, here's a guy, I've said this before, this man never tried to sell me anything. Mr. Rogers never tried to sell me anything. I thought he was a little bizarre, even as a little kid, but he never tried to sell me anything, and there was so much love coming from him. Talk about a bodhisattva. I like you just the way you are. You don't have to adjust, manipulate, twist, pull, or push anything. You're fine. Oh, what a gift. What a gift to give to a young person and to parents. And it's the great cosmic truth that all the wisdom traditions keep pointing to. And we can ignore it all we want. You know, in fact, most of us do most of the time. But it's right there. And how do we get there? How do we become just the way we are? By uncovering stillness. And when we uncover stillness, we recognize that we're enough. That our cup's full. We don't need anything more. We don't need to pour a little bit off the top. Oh, we're too much. I'm not, you know, where guilt oftentimes is about feeling too much. Of course, guilt can be about not feeling like you're living up to stuff as well. But that's all ego. That's all the little dance on the stage of mind taking place to keep the gifts of the infinite at bay. To keep them out. Or as uh, we say sometimes, to veil awakening from our sight. So what we practice here is sitting alone together and studying our cup, recognizing that it's enough, recognizing that there is no need for us to keep pouring. We don't need anything else. We don't need an extra set of letters by our name. We don't need that PhD. Might be nice. We don't need that new car. We don't need we don't need Jack. We don't need anything. It's perfect. Once that realization kind of begins to percolate through us and resonate the new car, the addition to the home, 
the PhD, whatever it is that we add, becomes no big deal at its core. We can recognize, oh, that's pretty neat, but we don't get caught by it. And when we're not caught by it, by life, or our activity in life, life begins to get lived through us. We are then a vessel of awakening. So tonight, when we sit still, see if you can really see what's moving. If you can see that stuff is moving, that which is perceiving the movement is what's still. Recognize that. You can be in a really horrible space right now, emotionally, physically. There could be horrible things going on in your heart or mind right now. That's just fine. More to practice with. You could be in a rich state of bliss right now. Great. More to let go of. More to practice with. Observe it. That observation is still. That stillness allows us to see that that cup is filled perfectly and nothing needs to be added or taken away. There's no need to pour more or pour it off. Okay? Several months back, I was leading a workshop where I gave a talk about uh, stillness. And I had the members of this, uh, of this group that I was, it, it actually wasn't our sangha, it was another, another meeting of another, another group of people. And they were asking, I, let me put it this way, I asked them, so what questions are burning? In my discussion of stillness, I said, out of stillness, everything arises. Everything, because all thing, things move, whether it's an idea, an idea evolves. A being is born, it evolves. What are they born out of? They're, they're born out of that which does not evolve, that which does not move. Emptiness. Out of emptiness, comes somethingness. <laughs> and so we were talking about this, and uh, you know, the, the question that kind of kept hitting was, well, so how do, we, how do we get to this place of emptiness? How do we get to this place of stillness? What moves do we have to make to become still? <laughs> and it cracked me up. It absolutely cracked me up, and I was trying to be very, very... You know, oh yeah, I understand, oh yeah, okay, well, sitting still is really critical. Finding time every day to be still is so critical. Meeting your life in that place of stillness. Being still, not to relax, not so that you will feel better, not to hide, to fade, or to fix, but just to meet whatever is without moving. And the hand shot up and uh, said, well, well, how much time 
do you need in order for this, this to kind of unfold? And I rather flippantly said, 10,000 hours. And the poor guy's face, it, literally, it had kind of, oh, you know, that type of thing. Just kind of this sinking elongation of his face, like, oh, 10,000 hours, isn't there a shortcut? And it was such a precious response as far as I was concerned. Isn't there a shortcut? And, of course, he hated what I said next, which was, that is the shortcut. <laughs> the sitting still is what prepares us for death. Sitting still is actually what uncovers that which does not move, that which does not evolve, that which is just absolutely full. We call it emptiness, but it's totally full. And what was in him, I'm guessing, but I'm going to take an educated guess since I've been doing this for a bit, what was in him was the desire to have something to grasp, something that he could subscribe to. Well, that, I'll take that answer. You know, but this 10,000 hours means I actually have to be really, I actually have to do this thing, and I'm absolutely unwilling to do that. That was kind of where, where his, his questioning, his attitude, I was, I'm reading a lot into this, so forgive. And, and, you know, if he ends up listening to the podcast or something and sending me hate mail, it's okay. I'm, you know, I'm ready. <laughs> but it's such a powerful, powerful idea. How long does it take to disidentify with the thoughts that we have running around in our mind? I mean, you could make it 10,000 hours. You could make it more than 10,000 hours if you wanted, but it doesn't have to be. I, I actually will tell you when exactly it will happen. It will happen in the now. It will happen in the present moment. As long as you wish, as long as your ego builds the defenses, uh, sows the veils... You can forestall it, keep it so that it's sometime in the future. But it will happen in the now when you actually open to what is just the way things are. So I don't know if it would take 10,000 hours. Who is it that wants to know? <laughs> Because once you uncover that, who it is that wants to know, you're on the right path. You've just, uh, you've just undone 5,000 hours of your 10,000-hour goal. Now let go of that. <laughs> anyway, this particular group, I had them um, write questions. On, uh, uh, I said, you know, as we have our discussion, please write down questions that you may have, and then I'll collect them at the end and try to answer them. And uh, I precisely had uh, one minute to answer questions. So I said, what I will do is I will at some point in time give a talk where I just try to incorporate as many of these questions as possible. And I proceeded to lose all of their questions until yesterday. <laughs> I met with them about six months ago. <laughs> so I want to dig through a couple of these and see where they lead us. And as I get into their questions, I would love it if you could 
just participate by letting your own questions arise. You don't have to have any. There may not be any. Um, and I may babble on until there are there is no more time left. But uh, I'm going to try to make it so that everybody has a chance to participate. And I will say this, that um, among the uh, ways of decreasing your 10,000 hour uh, total, um, questioning is huge. Questioning is huge. Uh, dialoguing with the teacher is huge. Uh, dialoguing with each other, reading. Spiritual friends have this really cool gift. They can be spiritual friends, meaning they can talk about spiritual stuff and then not have to feel obliged to go hang out with them, you know, each other. You don't have to hang out with each other afterwards. You can just kind of talk about stuff that, that moved you or that you disagreed with. Or That stuff's really important. That's how, that's how community develops. That's actually how Sangha gives us its gifts. So look very carefully at that stuff. I think it can be, I think it can be helpful. It can shorten the shortcut. There's a question that arises, this one uh, person writes, about how to help my parents understand that they should be proud of me rather than disappointed in me. That's pretty powerful. There's a question that arises about how to help my parents understand that they should be proud of me rather than disappointed in me. Most people, parents or otherwise, feel connected to, feel proud of those that feel proud of themselves. If you are looking to gain praise from outside, your cup is not full and you haven't recognized that it is. It's a very natural thing for us to do. We want the praise of our parents. This is so primal. It's so natural. But you can't help them to see what you want them to see ever. I mean, you could try, but all that is really is, a, is an egoic negotiation, looking for praise from the outside. When a non-need, does that make sense? When a, non, a non-need arises for praise, they will be very proud. When we do enough work, when we are still enough to be able to see through the folly of that desire, people will gravitate towards you. You become the center of the fire. You burn differently in that place. And you forgive and you are compassionate, and you are wise, and you're deeply and consciously connected with all things. Maybe they'll be proud of that, maybe they won't. But will it matter? That's the issue. 
That's the issue. We can't control other people. Our egos love to. They love to manage and control others. But when we get to the place that is actually beyond ego, suddenly we recognize who needs all that? Who needs that? What a losing proposition, a continual game of trying to control. Next question was, could you please speak to the influence of the divine in the hearts of all of us? The divine is all of us. At our core, at our core, we are expressions of the divine, as are these flowers sitting next to me here. as is the ego, as is every perception that you have, all of that is the divine that dances. Okay? So, the divine doesn't have an influence on us. I would just change the preposition there. It's not that the divine has an influence on us. It's that the divine has a potential of being consciously released through us. And that's sainthood. That's bodhisattvahood. Every one of us has that potential. And sometimes it's shown in really beautiful ways. A saint or bodhisattva or enlightened being or whatever, whatever terminology you want to use isn't someone that just kind of sits and vibrates differently you know, to the world, although they do. It's not, that's not their job, okay? Their job is to engage. And so strictly speaking, as Suzuki Roshi used to say, there are no enlightened people. There is only enlightened action. That enlightened action occurs whenever the divine that we perceive to be on the outside of us actually is realized to be us. And it's effortless. Shake, we shake kindness out of our shirt sleeves. It just happens. It just happens. So the divine is never not here. And the divine can be felt and experienced, okay, as stillness. I love this question. Next one. It's, it's two parts. And they, they numbered it. One, first part one and then part two. It says part one. Do things get or look worse before they get better at points of our evolution? Yes. They get worse before they get better. Because. Okay. And worse is a relative term. We begin to feel our lives more the more we meditate. And this can be absolutely freaky. And it gives the ego this great little uh, uh, trigger to pull. When, the, it, when we start actually engaging in a stillness practice and it really kind of starts seeping in and we get past the point where it's blissful, oftentimes beginners will be doing this practice. They'll, they'll get involved and then it's like, oh my goodness, I'm having all these great experiences and so forth. What does that mean? 
and I will always frustrate them because I'll say it means you have stuff to let go of. You know, the experience isn't the deal. The bliss isn't the deal. In fact, what it is, is an invitation to this great bash called life, conscious living, being awake in this very life, not in the next lifetime, now. So it's this really beautiful thing, and then once that kind of tapers off, the bliss kind of falls away. There's this, usually a long plateau. We, we go up, and then we go, oh, wow, that's great. And then there's this long plateau, and it's like, okay, running out of juice. And there's a lot of fall off. Lots of people will just say, I, you know, I don't, I don't really, I'm not really into this. And in that fall off, there's usually, things get worse. Okay? On that level. They, ugh, I hate this. What's really happening is, we're becoming more sensitized. We're becoming more conscious. We're becoming more aware of what's going on. Just like an alcoholic that suddenly decides, I will no longer touch this stuff. Guess what? They suddenly have to face their pain. That which had previously been anesthetized is now right there. And that's exactly what happens. The miracle is, while things may, in essence, kind of hurt more, we may feel that they, they hurt us more, they actually stick less. There's a certain slipperiness. We don't get caught like we used to. It doesn't stick onto us like, like Velcro. Instead, it's like our pain brushes up against us and then can kind of fall away. It's, it's just this amazing thing that occurs. So yes, things do get worse. But they're not worse. And you know that. Okay? I hope that makes some sense. And if anybody has a question about that, please feel free to ask. Part two of this question is, um, is the path to transformation incremental? Is it an incremental change? Or is it sudden? Um, I was trained in a school, most of my training was in, in a school uh, of what they call sudden enlightenment. And I always had this great idea that so, you know, someone is sitting there, they have these great stories that someone's sitting on the meditation cushion or something and all of a sudden, bam, oh, I'm enlightened. And, uh, or, or even better ones, um, uh, when the crow flies over their head and they hear the crow, you know, uh, 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 caw. Is that what a crow does? Does a crow caw? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. Just like that. Ah, and at that moment... The person is awakened. Okay, those are really cool stories, and you know what? For all I know, they're true, but sudden awakening still involves incremental steps towards stillness, and awakening never happens without stillness. It's not awakening. If there is no stillness, awakening is still seen as my awakening. And that's not awakening. Awakening cannot be possessed or held by a me or an I. That's why if anybody ever tells you, I'm enlightened, run. Run. Strictly speaking, there are no enlightened people. There are only enlightened actions. Okay? So, it's incremental, always. And this is kind of, I'm going to be a little bit of a cheerleader here. Be incremental. 
Be incremental in this practice. Push yourself. Give yourself a little bit of steel, okay? The very thing in you that does not want to get on your cushion is the very thing that will keep you from awakening. Know that. Know that the thing that says, oh, I need to go to the store. That is what impedes awakening. 15 more minutes of sleep. Boom, right there. Study that. Study that. It's a beautiful practice. Where does music, this is kind of a cool one, where does music and or vibration fit into the whole? Music is the whole. My question is, what is music? Or what is not music? I would never be able to ask that question and have any type of confidence about how I might answer it unless uh, in a practice period uh, scenario where we are not allowed to have our iPods or boom boxes or anything like that. Um, we let the earth and each other be our music. It was the most amazing thing in the world being silent for upwards of, I don't know, however many weeks on it. I guess there was three weeks there where there was, there was no talking. And the silence became so deep that it all became musical. All became musical. That music is never not there. They're just reconfigured in different ways. Something that you might hear on the radio. You might look at and say, well, that's music. Or ego says, that's good music. That's bad music. Right? But it's all music. My teacher made this big deal about how when you turn on the radio and you hear static, what you're actually hearing is an echo of the Big Bang. He's right. It's an echo of the Big Bang. Next time you're seeing fuzz on your screen, that's an echo of the Big Bang. Does it sound differently now? <laughs> Music, vibration, that's all there is. That's all there is. It's all that. <laughs>